I'll be reading from Acts chapter 11, beginning in 19. Acts 11, 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church and Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And as they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word, for this great privilege that we have to assemble together and to read your word and to come and worship you in song and to, Lord, just look to you to work in our hearts, God, by your spirit in keeping with what you've written. And we do pray that you would be exalted and that each of us, Lord, would just be open and yielded to you for what you want to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back. Appreciate Connor filling in for me last week. Patsy and I made a quick trip out to Florida. I was preaching in a, in a church there and then back again. So it's been my, my habit over the years to have mainly Connor or John preaching for me. And it just, you know, made me think how, I have a friend in San Antonio, many of you may know, Randall Draper, and, and he's had some young men that have preached for him over the years, and, and he has labeled them the sons of thunder. And so these are my sons of thunder, um, and Connor and, and John preaching for me, and occasion Clay, and I, I appreciate them each filling in for me. I'm sure they've thundered away in my absence. Um, this is another kind of transition point in Acts. There are many of them, kind of the church is being, we're being described for how it's doing, what's going on, and it starts out by once again recalling the persecution that arose after the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen lost his life back in chapter 7, and since that time the church has been heavily persecuted, and it's resulted in the church now scattering throughout the Roman Empire and in this section here, we're being told that the church now is purposely reaching out to Gentile people. It's the first time this has happened. Now, we know that this persecution, as far as the enemy is concerned, Satan, has been for the purpose of stopping this very thing. The enemy doesn't want Jesus proclaimed, and he will raise up persecution in order to stop the proclamation of Christ because we have to acknowledge that we are fearful beings and we, we fear persecution, we fear hard times, and it is a, it is a fact that not, in not 
um, all times does, has the church done well under persecution. There have been times when it has done very well under persecution, but we are to pray that that would be the exception, even when the church is doing well under persecution. The, Paul tells us to pray that we would live in times of peace. And so, yes, the church sometimes does well under persecution, but that doesn't mean we should pray for persecution. The enemy's goal is to stop the spread of the gospel during this time. I think back to the Old Testament and the time of the kings, and we can see how God was raised up Israel because he wanted all the nations of the earth to glorify him. And, and yet Israel was constantly moving away from God, and God was having to bring difficulties upon them to purify them. But we see that same spiritual tension going on. God has an agenda, and the enemy has an agenda. And at times it looks like the enemy is winning, but all through the times God is having his way. Jehoshaphat, one king in the Old Testament, good man, one of the only eight good kings of Israel. And for some reason that's not explained, he allowed his son to marry into the family of Ahab and Jezebel. So Jehoshaphat's son will marry the daughter of Jezebel, Athaliah. And under Athaliah's evil influence, she begins to motivate her husband to wipe out the line of David. Terrible time. And you think, what was Jehoshaphat thinking? And then after Jehoshaphat passes away and, and, um, and Jehoshaphat's son dies and Athaliah comes on the throne and she just goes crazy with persecuting and killing the descendants of David. So much so that it appears that there's only one son of David left to sit on the throne, a one-year-old boy named Joash, and he was rescued because of an aunt who stole him away and kept him in hiding for six years in the temple. And at seven years old, they bring him out, and they make him king, put the crown on his head, and the Bible says that he did well. He followed the, and walked in the ways of the Lord God as long as Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Well, then Jehoiada died, and Joash turns away from God. And there's see this constant push back and forth where it's good times, kings are walking with God. Bad times, kings are turning away from God. Nothing's changed. It's happening again here in Acts. It happens throughout church history. And it's, it's for our instruction to look at God's word and see how he wants us to walk with him and not be like a Joash that we're doing well only as long as good people are around us. But that we do well even when we can't meet together, even when there are great difficulties and, and when the church is scattered and persecuted, that we could still do well. And so I really appreciate the book of Acts and in this section as well that it's another indication of how the church can thrive even when things are not good. So it starts out and says, so, now, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. Why? Because they still see this as a Jewish movement. Cornelius, and that, that's a kind of a separate thing from this, but earlier in the chapter 10, first part of chapter 11, it's all about Cornelius, a Gentile, getting saved. And the whole point there is for the church to begin to see, and the Jerusalem elders are starting to get this, that this, 
is a new work that God is doing. The church is a separate entity from Israel. And, and the Jerusalem elders are getting it. But a lot of these Christians that have been persecuted have not clued in to what God is doing. This is not simply an extension of Israel. It is something new. The church is not Israel. God is doing a new work here. And a lot of the Jewish people, new, Jewish Christians, are still not cluing into that. And that's why they're going only to the Jewish people. But there were some exceptions. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Jewish Christians, Hellenistic, so they were not as focused on, on Israel and Jerusalem as other Jews would have been. They came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. This is the first time. We saw that the Ethiopian eunuch was a Gentile. He got saved. Cornelius, a Gentile, gets saved. But on both of those occasions, those Gentile men are taking the initiative. Now, it's the Jews taking the initiative to reach the Gentiles. First time. So these people are seeing the big picture. That God is wanting the world to come to faith in Christ. And it is not necessarily about Israel. God can use Israel, but he doesn't need Israel to accomplish this. And so they're cluing into this, and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, prior to this, and there are a number of occasions you can, I've highlighted in my Bible, just go back and look at some of them, where it says how they were preaching Christ. And so, um, for example, in chapter um, 4, it says in verse 2, they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And... Um, all through, it says they, they were proclaiming the whole message of this life. They were preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and, but many times in these, in these verses prior to this, verse, chapter 8, verse 5, they were proclaiming Christ to them. Um, chapter 8, verse 35, they were preaching Jesus to them. And so this is the first time that we see that they were preaching the Lord Jesus. The emphasis prior to this is they were preaching Christ. And I, I think the difference is because they were, again, focusing on the Jews. And Christ, as we know, is just the Greek translation for Messiah. And so they were going to the Jews and telling the Jews, Jesus is our Messiah. Okay? But now the focus is not on the Jews. It's Jewish Christians focusing on Gentiles, and they're saying, Jesus is the Lord. Now, the significance of this is they believed until this time Caesar is Lord. Okay? They called Caesar Lord. Caesar, we know, was taking titles for himself like Son of Man. He called himself Light of the World. And so when, when they are using these terms, they understood very clearly that you cannot place your faith in Caesar and in Jesus. It's one or the other. And either you're a worshiper of Caesar or you're a worshiper of Jesus. And so they're making a very clear distinction here with these people. And they were saying, Jesus is not Caesar. And Caesar is not Jesus. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so it's, it's powerful what they were doing here. And they're making sure that these Greeks understood what they were doing. They were making a transfer of allegiance from Rome to Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them. 
And a large number believed and turned to the Lord. And the news about them was, had reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check things out. Now, Antioch is a significant city. It is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. A minimum, historians say, of 500,000 people who lived in this city. Some say as many as 800,000 people. It was considered a very advanced and prosperous city. It had a main street that was four miles long and was the only city in the Roman Empire that streets were, were lit at night. And so, but it was also a very vile city. In fact, only the Corinthians exceeded Antioch in wickedness. And so it was a very wicked city. One of, their, um, of, the, of the writers or poets at the time said that the sewage of the Orontes and that Antioch sat on the Orontes River has been discharged into the Tiber. That was the, the river that Rome sat on, which was 1,300 miles away. So they are known as a wicked vile city, and a city, Antioch, that becomes the center for the missionary sending out of Paul and Barnabas and others. They will become the missionary sending church, the church in Antioch. It's amazing where God chooses to place his people and to raise up churches. And in the midst of the vileness of Antioch, in the midst of all the persecution that's going on, this is a missionary sending church. It's an amazing church. It says that when they heard the news about so many people coming to faith, they sent Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Probably because Barnabas was from Cyprus. And the people who had gone to Antioch and were preaching the Lord Jesus were Jewish Christians from Cyprus. And so they sent a guy who already had connections to these people who were evangelizing, and he could go there and check it out and find out what's going on. And Barnabas was very encouraged with what he saw. Verse 23, it says, when he, when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. One of the um, interesting things if, as we read the New Testament carefully is to see what new believers were taught. And one of the things that's inescapable is that brand new Christians were taught, you can fall away from Christ. Brand new Christians were taught to expect persecution and to be warned that under persecution, Christians don't always do well. Some fall away. When you read, for example, the letters that Paul wrote to, Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians, we know that Paul spent only three Sabbaths in Thessalonica before he was forced to leave because of persecution. But when you read that little letter to the Thessalonians, Paul makes several references to what he taught the Thessalonians during the less than three weeks that he was in that church. Three Sabbaths. So that's two, three weekends that he was there. And during that brief time that he was there, one of the things that he told these brand new Christians was, expect to be persecuted. So when he writes them in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you shouldn't be surprised at what's happened here. I told you these things were going to happen. I don't know any Christian in the United States or in Canada or in Germany, and I know a lot of Christians from those three countries, who was told when they put their faith in Christ, Expect to be persecuted. And take warning. 
Not all Christians finish well. Some fall away. Don't end up like that. But that's what Barnabas is doing. He's encouraging them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. This isn't the only time that this happens here in Acts. Look over in chapter 13, verse 43. 1343. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of, and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. In other words, don't fall away. In chapter 14, verse 21, Acts 14, 21, And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see this? This is a, it's, it's like if they had a manual on how to disciple people, this would have been lesson number one. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to be tempted to fall away. Don't let this be you. Don't be surprised at what's going to happen. Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Great guy. We've talked about Barnabas already. He came up before. He's going to come up again. He's going to be Paul's first traveling companion. Wonderful man. You need to remember, Paul and Barnabas are going to have a great falling out. And they won't do another missionary journey together because they're going to divide. They're going to have a difference of opinion over whether a certain individual should travel with them. And they separated. Now, Luke writes Acts. And Luke knew about what had happened. That's already history. He knew that Luke becomes one of Paul's best friends, became Paul's physician, Paul's traveling companion. So you know Paul and Luke have had discussions about Barnabas and what happened. And so when Luke writes about Barnabas, he has not been tainted by any negative thing that Paul has said. If he'd been tainted, he wouldn't have been saying, Luke, I'm sorry, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Spirit and full of faith. And I appreciate that, because they were at, they, they were at loggerheads with each other, Paul and Barnabas. And yet, Paul was himself a forgiving, good man. And he understood that this difference of opinion as significant as it was, doesn't mean that Barnabas was a bad guy. And so he's influenced Luke now to write concerning Barnabas and to praise him as being a good man, full of the Spirit, and full of faith. That's grace. And this, again, is characterizing the church here. In these early days, they haven't become mean-spirited because they live in mean times persecution, all kinds of bad things happening. And yet we sense the, a sweetness, a gentleness, a grace that is characterizing God's people. He left Tarsus and he went to look for Saul. And when he found him, 
He brought him to Antioch. The ministry is just too big. One man can't handle this. And Barnabas is going, apparently, I need help, and I know the right guy to come. And so he goes up, and he finds Paul. He's in Tarsus. It's his home area where he grew up. And he says, would you come and help me down in Antioch? Paul comes, and they spend an entire year there. They met with the church for a year. They taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that Bible school? Paul and Barnabas for a whole year in the midst of persecution that's going on. I just, reading and preparing for today, I came across somebody that just made almost an offhanded remark that I thought was significant of how discipleship works best in community. And I thought, how true that is. And as we at His Hill see this year in and year out, for over 40 years now, and many times people say, what is your program at His Hill? That, because it, it's remarkable what's happening, and people think there must be a program. There's not. It, it, but I th- the explanation is simply, God has designed us to live and grow and mature in the context of other relationships. Nobody does well in isolation. We have been made a body. And it's one of the tactics of the enemy is to try to keep the body from functioning as a body. Because the enemy knows better than anyone else how well the, ch- the church does, how discipleship is in the context of relationship. And so he's constantly wanting to make our lives so busy, so full, so fragmented that we don't have the opportunity to relate in community like we've been designed for. Now, not everybody is going to have the opportunity to be in a community like his hill for a year, but it is a foundational, life-changing experience typically. And one of the reasons is because many of the exhortations of Scripture aren't really inculcated into our lives unless we have other people who can come alongside of us and say, this isn't pleasing to God. This isn't true to who we are. I think about those four chapters, Romans, beginning in Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15 especially, but even, even into chapter 16, where they are chapters that are saying, this is how the Christian life is lived. And there are amazing statements that, that are there, beginning with, we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. This is, these are the chapters. This is how, the, I mean, these, these are discipleship chapters, Romans 12 through 16. And it begins with, we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. And then it says that we consider others more highly than ourselves. We think so as to have sound judgment, not regarding ourselves better than other people. These are discipleship things. And these things are things that are best learned in community. And where Paul continues just in chapter 12, and, 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 and there's, like I said, several chapters like this. Let love be without hypocrisy. How do you learn that except in community with other Christians? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And you can see how the enemy doesn't want that kind of devotion. 
I appreciated what Jay was saying about the Foos family in India, how and their and their difficult pregnancy and, and the isolation and all of this COVID virus and this small church in India rallying around and making sure that clothing got washed and food meals are pre being prepared. That's being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, and on and on. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is right. All these are just practical admonitions. This is what the Christian life looks like. And it's learned in the context of community. It begins with the family. You want to know what to teach your kids? Read Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. This is what family is supposed to look like. It's what community looks like, church looks like. It's not a perfect environment. No community is. But you can think, I just think the other day, I mean, I hear things from time to time. And I see things over the years. You know, we talk about we're in community, we're one, we're a body. And most of the time, I am so deeply encouraged. It seems like year after year, the Lord will give us folks that, you know, one, two, three, maybe, not many. But they are, can be just kind of awkward. And, and I've even sometimes, some of these individuals, I've, I've been told by references or parents before they come, I says, you know, they, they'll tell me they've, had, they've just never fit in. And I'm thinking, well, I hope they fit in here because I don't want them to come to a Christian school and not fit in and have this be a terrible experience for them. And I've been honest sometimes with parents and said, I hope this works, but I don't know. Because Christians can be stinkers. And Christians don't always love each other. And don't always regard others more highly than themselves. But I've been so blessed over the years to see how there's been some folks that have never, ever been accepted before. And they step into their own age group. And I'm thinking, oh, is this just going to be more harassment and peer pressure and, and ostracization and rejection? And they've just been loved like they've never been loved in their lives. And such a blessing to see. And I can commend them and say, this, you're living out what Christ is talking about. In other times, I hear that somebody, you know, a carload of people going off to Chick-fil-A or something, and somebody walks up and say, hey, could I go with you? And there's room in the car. And I hear a report that says, no, you can't go with us. Breaks my heart. But see, those things are going to happen. In all of life, those things happen. But when you're in community, then you can come alongside and say, tell me that wasn't true. That was not Christ-like. That was not Christ living through you. Scripture says regard others more important than yourself. Scripture says associate with the lowly, not cast them aside. And you can see how the growth takes place in the life transformation because we're interacting with each other. And once again, the enemy's hand is to stop this from happening. That's why he wants families to split up. He doesn't want Christians to be functioning in community. He doesn't want us to come together for church and for Bible studies because he wants to stop the transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And this is an amazing ending to this chapter. Well, before I go to the last part, again, verse 26. They were first called Christians in Antioch. I didn't remember this. I know I've heard it before. I've gotten most of what I've ever heard. There's only three times in the New Testament that Christians are called Christians. 
Only three times. And this was the very first time. And this is, I don't think the sense here is that Christians were calling themselves Christians. They don't seem to be really sure what to call themselves. They call themselves followers of Christ. Some of them call themselves followers of the way, um, because Jesus was the way. But we don't see that Christians were calling themselves Christians as what other people were calling them. Now, that's significant on a couple of levels. The simplest and most obvious one is other people who are looking at these believers and hearing what they were preaching, Jesus, were saying, these people are followers of Christ. And so that's what they got tagged with. It literally means belonging to the party of Christ. Now, we like to think it means Christ in you, Christ in, in, Christ in, you know, well, that's not what it means. But we know Christ is in the believer. But it literally means that others were saying these people are followers of Christ. That's great. They lived their lives in such a way that it was consistent, their lives were consistent with what they were preaching. But there's another level where this is significant. They were not being called Jewish Christians. They weren't being, Jew, Judaism, and again, I am not anti-Semitic. If you've been in this church long enough, you know how strong I am about Israel. And God has a future for Israel. I still believe Israel is the one nation God has chosen. I do not for a minute believe that God has rejected Israel. I believe that we should pray for the peace of of Israel, the peace of Jerusalem, and that means their reconciliation with Christ. I believe what Scripture says, that if their rejection, meaning their rejection of Christ, be blessing, how much more will their acceptance of Christ be? It'll be even greater blessing to the world. And so I am, I am 100% in favor of the Jewish people and, and the Jewish state, and I know that the second coming of Jesus is very much dependent upon the Jewish people turning to Christ. So having said that, it is also clear to me that when they are saying these people are Christians, they are not identifying these new believers with Jerusalem, with Israel. They're identifying them with Christ. And that is very significant. They weren't being called spiritual Jews. Now again, you'd think there'd be a point of correction here. Oh, don't call me a Christian. You need, to call me, you need to call me a spiritual Jew. You need to call me spiritual Israel. But there's no correction to this because it was right. It's about Christ. And even God raising up Israel, it's about Christ that God raised up Israel. It's not about Israel that God raised up Israel. But it's about Christ, that they would be a light to the world, that the world would place their faith in Christ. So they are a distinct, the early church is being regarded once again as distinct from Israel. And now, interesting things happen here. I don't know how to take this. Nobody does. So we'll just cut it out of our Bible. <laughs> Can't do that. At this time, Church is flourishing, even though it's under persecution. They're able to meet in community and disciple one another. At this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
And one of them named Agabus, he's going to appear later in Acts, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Okay, what do you do with that? I don't know. And it's not that it doesn't fit my theology. It's just this is not the kind of thing that we routinely see happening today. And even in this day, I think it would be fair to say, even in the first century of the church, this was not something that was happening all the time. It was rare. But so the sense of what the prophecy is and why it's happening, and then there's a question, does this still happen today? Now, I'll get into that question later when we come back to Agabus toward the end of Acts, because he's going to come back up again, and he's going to give another prophecy, which is not about a worldwide famine. It's going to be a prophecy that concerns one man, Paul. And so it'll be significant to look at the nature of prophecy when we come to that. But this was a prophecy concerning the whole world, and this is something that I don't know happens today, where God raises up one man to speak to the entire church concerning worldwide events. I don't know. Now, I know that, for example, um, to use something that just happened this weekend, John MacArthur would never consider himself, call himself a prophet, at least not in the Old Testament sense. He would call himself a follower of Jesus Christ and a teacher of God's word. And just this weekend, his church has put out a statement on how they are going to respond to the government restrictions that are being placed on the church in California. And I've read part of it. I haven't read the whole thing yet. And honestly, my heart has rejoiced. And I'm going to thank God for John MacArthur taking the stand to come out and speak boldly on behalf of us all. And he wasn't saying on behalf of us all because he's just saying this is what our church, how we're going to start responding to this. And in essence, he said, we've gone far enough. And we're going we're to start functioning as God has intended for us to function. And I'm paraphrasing him. But I read that and I go, hopefully, and, if, and I don't know that he's, and I'm not saying he's prophetic, but I can see how God could use a person to speak to the church worldwide. I don't know that we need to call them a prophet. But I do believe that God has raised up individuals from time to time throughout church history whose singular voice has had a worldwide impact for good for the people of God. That doesn't mean that they are speaking in terms of future events that are going to happen. John MacArthur is not speaking about future events. He's speaking into the current event. But this man, Agabus, is foretelling something that's yet to happen. And he says, a worldwide famine is coming. Now, maybe it had already started in Jerusalem. Because the question then comes, why, if there's going to be a worldwide famine, do they take some of their money and send it immediately to Jerusalem? Because they're going to need the money, right? Well, maybe the famine that has started and we don't know, maybe it started in Israel, and Agabus is coming from Israel, and he's saying, hey, Antioch, you need to get ready, because God showed me that this is not just a, an Israel problem. 
that what's going on in Israel is going to be a worldwide problem. And so you need to get ready for this. But here's what I can't answer dogmatically whether God raised up people to speak concerning future events for today, for the whole world. I doubt it because that kind of is getting into the extra biblical authority type of thing. And I know scripture is our authority. And, and I do believe that God raises up people who speak to the, and whose singular voice can impact the whole church around the world. But this is what really, and, and, and as I, my mom one time, she had a salesman come to the house many years ago. I was just a kid. And the guy was just so frustrated with her. And he said, Ms. McCall, I don't know what he was selling, vacuum cleaners or something. And he said, Ms. McCall, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've never had anybody ask the questions that you ask. So I think I've inherited some of that from my mom. Because I read through, through the Bible, I, sometimes, I, ask my, I ask questions, and I go to the commentaries, nobody's answering the questions that I have. So either they're bad questions or something, I don't know. Because, I, because one of the things I look at and I go, why did these people respond the way they did? And remember, they are Christians, followers of Christ, who have had the Lord Jesus preach to them. And I find the miracle here is not that God uses a man to tell them what's going to happen in the future. See, that's where we put our attention. The miracle is not that. The miracle is how they respond. They don't just think about themselves. I mean, if we were told, somebody stands up and says, hey, church of the earth, planet earth, okay, this is what's going to happen in the next five years to the church. Most of us would be going, okay, how much money do I have in the bank? How safe is my house? Maybe I should go out and buy a gun, make sure I've got enough ammunition, right? You know, we, the, our first thought in the flesh is to protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves, to make sure that our family is going to be safe. That's not their first thought. And I find that to be the bigger miracle than God using Agabus to tell the church what's going to happen. Their first thought was, man, what can we do for the Christians in Jerusalem? That's supernatural. When your first thought is not yourself. Because that is our first thought. As fallen creatures, our first thought is ourselves. How do I protect myself? How do I provide for myself? But we have a God. And as a Christian, that should not be our first thought because God is our protector and God is our provider. But our first thought ought to be, God, I've got more than I need. Can I help somebody else out? And that's what they did. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. And so this is new as well. Prior to this, when there were needs, everybody was just selling everything they had and putting it in the big pot, and the, and the apostles were distributing it. That's not what this is. This is different. In proportion as they had means, they were going, you know, I don't need as much as I have. And these people in Jerusalem are hungrier than I am. God has given surplus, and he's made me aware of a need. I need to meet the need. And that is the Christ that they have believed in being expressed in their lives. 
It is supernatural. Oftentimes, we only see this in children. <laughs> because they're not, they're not usually as conscious of possessions and where food's going to come from and all that that we are. And so they all say, there's a need. And, I, and it warms our heart and blesses us. When Michael and Brooklyn, my, my son and daughter-in-law, I mean, they've just done such a wonderful job with their boys. And, and, and every year they orient the boys to, you know, let's have a lemonade stand. And, and all the money that, you, that we get, you guys need to think of where you want the money to go to. Because they don't need the money. They don't even know what money is. You know, and, and so they sell cups of lemonade for a dollar to the students. But they already have something in mind to give it to. They've given it to the fire department here in, in Bernie and different things that they've done. Just, just, and, and they're, but they're being oriented, see? This is where, where you've heard me say this before. We had a, had a person that was part of our fellowship and part of uh, Bernie, of um, his hill, and he was from Uganda, Gerald Sariagi, with, the, with Jesus now. And he did his doctoral dissertation on how to help Africa. And he came to the conclusion that Africa will never be helped until Africans learn to give. And he's speaking about the church. The church in Africa needs to become a giving church. And that will turn things around in Africa. Powerful. And, and here, that's what's happening here. This church under persecution, with limited resources, with the news that famine is going to hit them, when they get that news, they're going, well, it's not here yet. And we've got more than we need. Not hoard, not fortress mentality, but who can we help? That's supernatural. Only God can do something like that in somebody's life. And they weren't sitting back there praying, oh God, when the bad news happens, you know, just, you know, and th th this was just spontaneous. They get the news and they respond in the spirit of the Lord, thinking of someone other than themselves, which is love. Love considers others first. So I appreciate this summary statement of what's going on in the church in the midst of very difficult times. Appreciate the church is now thinking the church is more than Israel. And they are purposely choosing to go to Gentiles and spread the gospel to them. For a man like Barnabas, who has the wisdom and the insight and the grace to understand the good of what God is doing, and to encourage Paul, Saul, to be a part of that. But I appreciate that in all of this, we see what God is doing to bring people to a true, not just intellectual saving knowledge of Jesus, but to a practical saving knowledge of Christ, where how they're living their lives truly manifest Christ. I want that for myself, and I know you do as well, that no matter what happens in our lives, the sweet aroma of Christ is being manifest. Some people are going to respond well to that. Others aren't. But may we be a people that no matter what befalls us, people can say, that's a Christian. That's a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you just really have held nothing back. You've, you don't present a, a varnished um, view of history or of your people, the church.
but we see it for how it is. There's good, there's bad. And we thank you, God, for what you were able to do in transforming lives into the image of Jesus, to bring us into conformity to him. It's a miracle, God. There is no greater miracle than the miracle of redemption. That in our selfishness and our total preoccupation with self, that you could take us, God, and make us think first of others, our first thought, others and their needs. Only because of your powerful work. Only because of the Spirit of God within us and the love of Christ being poured out within our hearts. We thank you for this, God. We pray that your life would be just increasingly manifest through us, especially in dark times. That each of us would be as a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And that Jesus would be glorified. I pray that we would never forsake the assembly together, God. That we would cherish and value what we can learn in community that are so difficult to learn when we're alone and by ourselves. And whether it's just choosing to have a roommate, living together as families, or coming together as a church, God, that we would cherish the fellowship that we've been given and the body that we've been made a part of. In Christ's name, amen.